Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Title Side, Chicago Title, Oklahoma's podcast. Today, my co-host and my boss and my mentor and somebody I had a my respect, Ken McBride. Thank you for being with us, Ken. And Brian Bomar. Hey, David. Thanks for having me on the show today. Regional President, Cornerstone Home Lending, I think correct? that's what the title is today, yeah, Regional President. <laughs> today. But you know what? That's not the only title you hold, right? Don't you run numerous businesses? Yeah. So, you know, you, yeah, typically in the mortgage business, like guys are mortgage guys. Um, I'm more of like just a business guy that, you know, the biggest thing I do is mortgage. But <laughs> we uh, we do, you know, I I don't know. I, a lot of people would call me like a serial entrepreneur. I've been gifted with a capacity to just kind of do more things at once. Um, sometimes that gets me in trouble. Sometimes I overcommit. But uh, yeah, we've got a We've got a, a tech company I run. Um, we've got we're in insurance. Um, we do some cool, some innovative stuff there. We uh, do a lot in just real estate um, investing and development stuff, and um, just pretty involved and just always looking for opportunities to grow. And um, I see things that you know that don't exist, and I feel like they should, or I see opportunities, and I've always been willing to just take risk and jump into something I don't quite understand and figure it out. I, I, anyway. mean, I have to tell you, I remember the first day I met you. Do you remember it? Um, I, I don't know about the first day. I remember, the, I remember the first day I met you. Okay. It was uh, at Ted's Okay. for a lunch. Yeah. And you and Heather were with Robert's Mortgage. Robert's Mortgage. And I worked at another title company then. And uh, I, I'll just, I'll never forget that day because... Meeting you and Heather, I was like, oh, wow, some new people that I haven't met before. And then seeing the trajectory uh, that you guys took and then life after Robert's Mortgage, where you've come, I, I, I can't say I've ever seen you take a step backwards, not a hint of a step backwards. So, you know, I wanted to say to you from, you know, I, I know we're friends, but I'm very impressed with how you have grown as a man, as a parent, as a dad. Um, it's just really been cool to watch. So oh, thank you. just thanks, thanks for being here. We're really excited about diving in and learning more about, about Brian Bomar. Brian, uh, go ahead and elaborate a little bit on, on the kinds of things that, that someone should know about you. What, if someone yeah. wanted to know Brian Bomar, what, what are the kinds of things they need to know? Yeah, so married for, I round up to 20 years, but we're actually, uh, it's actually 17 years, been married to Heather. Uh, we've got four biological kids right now. We're fostering one that should probably lead to an adoption. So normally I'd call it five, but it's not like permanent yet. Uh, and the dog, we're we're on the verge of moving to a farm. So Heather's already bought a cow, and the kids have bought <laughs> a, a couple chickens each. Um, so we're about to we're about to move out there here in a couple of weeks. I, I actually went to an auction, a sheriff sale, and just kind of talking about crazy and taking risks. There was this really cool property in South Edmond. Um, it was unique land and uh, it was all fenced up and um, overgrown. And I just thought, man, that is six acres in, in uh, South Edmond on Memorial and I-35. And I thought, man, that, that looks really cool. So I just went to the sheriff's cell and bid on it and won it. And it was, the house was infested with um, mold and snakes. Like we, <laughs> we killed eight snakes that were living in the house because the the people that had lived in there before, they had a, like a lot of like uh, doomsday preparation food. 
and uh, the house kind of being in the country, squirrels and mice and rats would get in there, and eventually the snakes found out. And so there's all these snakes living in it, and it was uh, the project ended up being a lot bigger than I expected. I, I tell people that I thought I got a really great deal in the house. Ended up we just got an average deal on the house after the renovations were done. But um, but yeah, so we're moving out there, and uh, like I said, I'm I'm involved in a lot of business stuff. Really, uh, actually, when I was I don't know in my early 20s, I actually had uh, I'd always been good at business and sales, and I actually wanted to um I, th- I felt like the way to really make the most of your life was to be in ministry actually and so i i was i was work as a sales manager at a tech company and i was doing really well i was, I was probably i don't know 21 or 22 and kind of uh i don't know comparable for my age it's extremely successful and she quit to try to do full-time ministry for a year and that didn't work out well. It was it was a pretty tough year in a lot of aspects. And um, found out that I that I really believe that you know God calls people to business, and that there's if you want to make a, a positive impact in the world, you can do that in business in a way that as I was you know a younger man of faith, I didn't quite appreciate you know. But just the ability both to lead people and lead them well, and um, honor them and appreciate them and create an environment where they thrive. Um, and also to, um, be successful and have kind of resources to make differences in other ways. Um, we've, you know, I, I, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't appreciate that when I was young. I thought if, if you wanted to make a difference in the world, it was like had to be through full-time right. ministry. And I'd say that we minister to a ton of people, that, that work for us and in a lot of other ways that wouldn't be possible without business and kind of the, the, the resources and right. um, influence that comes from success. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you. Well said. So uh, president of the region of Cornerstone, yeah. uh, I remember the days that Cornerstone did not have a market in Oklahoma. Yeah. You started that up. Yeah. Is it 13 years? Oh, let me think about that. Yeah, I think that sounds right. About 13, 13 years, years ago. Yeah. I think I remember 13 years ago moving desks from yeah, Sam's. Yeah, we hired and, you to, and, and we hired you and, and you together. and a buddy, I forget who yeah. it was, uh, yeah. that came in and <laughs> helped us build desks. And I, I would have been there, but we was, it was like a refi boom. So I was originating loans and I'd just check on you. I don't know where all those extra screws came from. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we worked for, uh, you know, we, we worked you know, you mentioned Robert's Mortgage. We worked for a small broker shop and we left there to go to a bigger national lender. And that lender went out of business in the bust of 07. Like that, there's actually a really interesting movie on, I think you catch it on Netflix or, or maybe um, Google Play, but it's called Margin Call. Have you ever seen Margin Call? I have not, but I will watch it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. And basically the movie is uh, a reconstruction of the 24 hours. And, it, and I remember the day, in August 2007, that the entire subprime mar- market collapsed just in one day. One day, gone. yeah. And one guy basically fig- realized that all these bonds they were trading were actually worthless. They're not worth anything. And so these guys start off in the morning and trying to just liquidate their entire holdings. And by the end of the day, they're liquidating stuff at like forty cents on the dollar. Um, and that day was the day that you know I worked for a company called Meridius Capital. That company went out of business that day because they were really heavy in the alt day and the subprime yeah. and non-agency business. And, and so we, we actually had customers that were driving to closing. And I said, Hey, I'm sorry. All of our warehouse lines got frozen. We don't have money. Uh, 
But I'll get this turned around. We'll close you in a week. Um, I got to put it with another lender. And we had a broker's license in those days too. So I was able to turn on a broker. It closed it all a week later. It's a little awkward, but, um, and so we, you know, we didn't really have a home. So Heather and I went out and, uh, talked to some people that we knew in the industry and really loved Cornerstone. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, when, when I, uh, when I met the team at Cornerstone, the owner, the CEO, and kind of all the leaders, um, they wanted to run a financial model to make sure that, you know, based on our production that kind of opening a new market would be viable. And they asked for our production numbers. Well, I'd only been in the business two years and um, we'd had some struggles at our, at our first two companies, just operations mm-hmm. and kind of being able to honor our commitments. And so, um, you know, they kind of gave me a, like a minimum production level that really needs to be in place for the financial model to be viable. And uh, I called him, I called up Mark and I said, Hey, uh, I'm going to send these numbers over, but I'm going to tell you right now, they're not going to work. But, but if you give me a chance, I know what we can do. You know, if you'll just take a chance on me. So we had to kind of beg and to let us come on and open a market. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Believe in yourself. But, uh, Heather and I were doing, I think $14 million a year between the two of us at that time. And then, uh, we had a couple other folks that maybe uh, did, I can't remember. I I don't want to say a number. It was less than that that came with us, but we, we really were supposed to be at 50 million a year to, for it to make sense. And we were less than half of that. And so I said, Hey, if you'll give me six months, I promise I'll be there. It less came on within six months we were there. And then, you know, we'll, we'll probably, um, we'll probably do a billion two this year, billion four between the different markets we're in. Yeah. Some, somewhere all? like that 13 <laughs> years later. So, uh, but yeah, we had to, we had to kind of beg them to let us come on because the pro forma showed a loss. Sure. On, on the deal. Which is not totally uncommon in new businesses. Um, no, it's not. But, but I get it. You want to make that money as quickly as possible. Yeah. Well, when you're looking at, uh, at a business opportunity, uh, tell us a little bit about what you look for. I mean, obviously, you look at a lot of opportunities, a lot of business opportunities. What are you looking for? And, and what really would be the type of thing that would, uh, would capture your imagination? Yeah, so um, so that's a really good question. Uh, so so one thing that one thing that I you know when I was I think I was nineteen I bought my first house and I actually bought a duplex and I I rented out half of it and I lived in half with a couple of roommates and so we actually made a little bit of money after we paid all the bills and you know so I got to live there for free, um, but I was managing it myself and I realized that really it, w- it was a job and it was a job that I didn't enjoy and I didn't have the time for and it wasn't good at and um so so that that's maybe the first thing that a lot of people don't understand they they don't understand that some businesses are not really a business that kind of inherently is generating and creating value um instead they're maybe calling it a business but really all they're doing is they're trading their own time for a wage whether it's in the form of a profit or, or commission or whatever um and so so anyway, I've become a bigger fan of businesses that have um, kind of like recurring revenue, whether it's rental and I mean, I, I mentioned beginning, I mentioned, you know, rentals and insurance and software, which is subscription based. And those all have a recurring element to them, which is really great. Um, and then something that can scale, something that, you know, if you're you have a business and it's just you selling something, it's hard to scale that if you. Uh, you know, want to have two people or three people and, um, you know, kind of pr- provide leverage to yourself. 
Um, and then just, uh, you know, there, I look at a lot of deals that I don't think make a ton of sense. Um, cause they're, they're real capital intensive. There's a lot of risk. There's not a lot of differentiation between what someone's doing and anything else that's out there. And so, so we've been, you know, we've, we've just kind of been looking for more opportunities and kind of unique ways to create value. Um, so I don't know, I don't know if that's a great answer to your mm-hmm. question, but, but leverage scale, um, something that could be really big. It, it's funny, you know, as you progress, you, you begin to maybe something that, was really attractive five or 10 years ago, even if it performs really well, may not be big enough to, um, you know, make sense, you know, like for one, you know, about seven or eight years ago, Heather and I started buying a bunch of rent houses. Um, now we're trying to sell those and we'd like to, you know, start getting into apartments or something like that, just because the, the just because the total size of it makes more sense. So as you, as you grow those, some of those things change, um, but we, uh, you know, just kind of look at, we look at, you know, um, everything uh, b- being in real estate, you know, we've, I've taught a- appraisal classes to home builders many times. Um, we, you know, we, it, it fluctuates, but I'd say pr- we average, we finance about 10, uh, one out of every $10 used to buy a home in, Oklahoma, in the Oklahoma city metro area. So we look at a lot of deals and, um, real estate is something that I'm very, very comfortable with. I know it really well. And so I, I like to stick with things that I know really well or have a partner. Uh, that's another thing. I, I do really enjoy partnering with people. Um, if I'm really good at one thing, but I, I don't have a lot of time or interest for something else and someone else uh, can can offset that and our weaknesses and strengths offset each other, um, I'm great with partnerships. You know, if it take a take a smaller cut of a pie that can get a lot bigger. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And normally yeah. one plus one can equal three. If you've got the right partner mm-hmm. or one plus one plus one plus one, you bring five people in, but it's, you get 10 X instead of just five X on it, it. It can make a lot of sense. Right. Right. So think back to, to when you started, what, what were some of your biggest obstacles? Uh, you know, I remember, you know, when we, when we open up Cornerstone, obviously, um, the the biggest challenge then was just nobody really knowing who you were mm-hmm. and not trusting you. And that it seemed like that really just kind of switched overnight. Like we went from feeling like the underdog to switching to be kind of the, you know, the, the guy with the target on your back. And mm-hmm. I tell my loan officers all the time that, you know, you're going to get everyone's best shot. Matter of fact, we, I won't say names, but there's certain, competitors in the market that we know have a cornerstone discounts. Like if you're competing against cornerstone, just automatically discount your, <laughs> your targeted price by this much. And we've seen it The you know, they, if they hear the word cornerstone, it's like drop the price immediately. Um, that's fine. You know, everyone's got to do what they got to do to, to try to win. Um, and that's fine. And I, I don't even really look at it as winning and losing. Like there, it's a huge market. There's a lot of, a lot of business out there for everybody. Um, so that was probably the biggest thing is just getting started. And then, uh, not having like the brand and, and name rec- reputation, you know, we did, um, you know, back in those days, fax machines were still a thing. You would fax a pre-approval letter. So we had this strategy to um, every single borrower that we did a loan for when we pre-approved them, when we, uh, when they were approved out of underwriting, when they were clear to close. And when we sent docs to the title company, we would send a fax to the real estate office for the realtor and the thought was that someone else would get it off the fax machine and walk it 
So we would get like twice the yeah. recognition. It's like free ever. Four times alone. <laughs> um, and so we literally, we had a digital fax software that every single loan, when it hit those four milestones, we would send a fax to the real estate office, hoping that one realtor would pick it up and put it in the other realtor's box. And Some genius. <laughs> and people would begin to grow and get comfortable with us and know who we were, you know. Um, now I was actually, I had, I was asked to fax something the other day. I was like, I don't know how to fax something anymore. I like, I don't, I don't have a fax machine. I don't have fax software. I don't, I had asked my assistant, I was like, Hey, can you yeah. figure out how to fax this to this yeah, place that we, needs it? We don't have fax machines at Chicago title. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Brian, if, uh, uh, I'm intrigued by your story when you, uh, when you kind of first started out, uh, in your business career, but if you could roll back time and go back to the young Brian Bomar at that point in your life, what advice would you give the young Brian Bomar? Yeah, that that's a really good question. I probably, my biggest regret is like, you know, ma- imagine you're going through like raging rapids. You know, you can choose to like freak out the whole time or to like really laugh and yell and have fun. And the journey is going to be the same, but it's just like how you respond to it. You know, um, one of the things that I've been working on with my own mindset and is just enjoying the tumultuous nature of business and being self-employed, the volatility of it, like just understanding that, hey, you know, I'm not, you know, I mean, Lord willing, I, I don't see myself going bankrupt or you know, having to beg for food or, you know, getting kicked. I mean, I know that happens to some people when business goes bad, but I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and so, so normally my reaction to obstacles and challenges, um, I think I responded maybe too stressfully to situations. Uh, like I, I, I viewed them in a, in a very kind of, um, cortisol filled response to when things would be challenging or not go the way I wanted, or when I saw potential threats and I've, you know, as I've grown, I've realized that that's just part of the game because because truthfully um, there's nothing good in life that's left. That's easy. Like all the good stuff is hard. Like the only thing that's good, like if you want something good, it's going to be hard. Other people want it to, um, and if you want something easy, it's probably going to be pretty cheap and not have a ton of value to it. Right. And that's that's true in area in you know relationships, in health, in finance, and business. Like the good stuff's hard, and um, and so if you want good things, you know you're gonna have to go down a hard road. But it's not. It makes it so much more hard, and that's a poor sentence structure. But I I said it on purpose. It's so much more hard. If you are responding poorly to these challenges and you're you're kind of gritting your teeth and and bearing your you know like whiting your knuckles because mm-hmm. you're gripping so hard because you want to deal through it and, and I realized that that didn't necessarily help me make better decisions or work better it probably made me less effective and so probably the biggest thing now is just to try to you know not um, go to some of those dark places when challenges come up instead instead approach it from a position of light and possibility and um, faith that, Hey, we'll figure this out. You, you know, know if, no matter what, we'll figure this out. If I think of a, a young listener out there, that's 1920 getting into the real estate world, it's the best advice they could have right there. 
Yeah. Your, your, your attitude can really shape your path. Oh, and we see it all the time mm-hmm. with, you know, cause when, when you, when you're part of a transaction, there's a lot of other professionals involved and it, it's amazing how, um, uh, actually let me, let me switch it here. There was a study that I re I read one time it was on babies and babies learn to choose their emotional response to a scenario by looking at their mother and reading her face. And so if a child falls, they look to the mom and say, mm-hmm. should I cry or is this no big deal? And the mom's face is actually what's teaching them how to respond to it. And, and, and this was, and I, I can't, I, I read the study, but I can't like cite it, but you could Google it. You could find mm-hmm. it. Um, and it, it talks so much about just how a baby's response mechanisms to the world and distresses and the challenges ultimately is being um, being kind of installed by mom's facial expressions and how she's responding it's to human nature. Yeah. And I just think about a real estate transaction and, you know, we've just seen little things that became really big because of a professional's response to them right. versus just kind of going with the flow saying, Hey, it's going to be okay. You know, this is normal. Of course, you know, you see less of that at the higher end of the volume scale and, and you know, just mm-hmm. cause you, you've been through it more and you just, you realize that, Hey, these things happen, you know, right. Older homes need peers. Sometimes, you know, an, an extra invoice shows up the day of closing and things, you know, got to be recalculated. You know, these things just happen. It's just, Roll with the, way the punches. That, roll with it, and well, and just assure people, hey, this is normal, because those buyers are looking to your face, and when they want to see your expression to realize, hey, is this normal or should I freak out? Yeah, should I start throwing things? You know, I think he's talking about you too, Ken. I, I know within our organization, he he leads us with that exact uh, saying. You know, he he leads us by his actions. So yeah, it's true. Well, I think my experience was that uh, the last easy transaction closed in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was there. It was really nice, and, but that's all over. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the mortgage market. I mean, obviously, yeah. this is your wheelhouse. Where do you see mortgages in the next six months to a year to maybe even you know through three years? Yeah, if you have that, you know, the forecast. Like what aspect of it? Rates or availability or you know what? just just kind of yeah. All, yeah. all of the above. Where where do you see your industry, you know, moving to? Um. So, you know, the the coronavirus COVID nineteen thing has has been really interesting, and a lot of my assumptions were wrong when we came into this, and most people have kind of aligned with me and how wrong they were as well, <laughs> like what they thought was going to happen. You know, I thought um, the economic impact and the fear would just grind real estate transactions to a halt. Um, and instead it seems to have spurred up the desire to improve one's home living situation, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, and we, so we're just seeing a ton of purchase business, um, a ton of it. Uh, and then anecdotally, you know, I know guys that own pool companies and backyard landscape companies, and those guys are slammed too, because people that aren't selling their homes moving there, they're wanting to go ahead and install that pool now because just being stuck inside their home for six weeks or eight weeks or however long they were, you know, quarantined for was um, just had this impact, you know? And so the purchase business is incredibly busy right now. Um, You know, for a mortgage lender, you also have this, I don't know if you, I mean, it's both a blessing and a curse that 
rates are really low. And so we, we are not doing, we're, we're doing very little to solicit refinances from our customers because it's so busy right now, but they call every day. And we're obviously going to serve them if they call. And so you, you also have just a really, really big um, refinance opportunity. Matter of fact, when rates first dropped, I, I think that if the statistic was that if the mortgage industry went 100% refinance, there was four years of business to refinance the entire eligible pool of mortgages wow. that were there. And of course, you, you do have purchase business, so you do have to slow down. But um, the mortgage industry, when rates are low, which isn't always the case, but when they're low, it has the opportunity to kind of augment their purchase business with refinances. And um, some aspects of the business, it generates the same amount of revenue regardless. Other aspects, it, it has some other financial implications. But um, but mainly on the production side, it, it's it's really irrelevant the the purpose of the loan, whether it's for a purchase or refinance. The revenue modeling is is pretty much the same. Um, so so it's it's really interesting. You know, we we've for so long I've thought rates should go up because it it didn't make sense to me that if a customer is getting a three percent interest rate, well, the actual bondholder at the the beginning of the food chain is maybe getting like a two and a quarter return on their bond they're purchasing. Um, maybe two and a half somewhere in there, but you know, Fannie Mae's got their add-ons. Uh, there's a servicing add-on. The lender has their add-on to cover their operating costs and their profit targets and things like that. And so, um, I've always thought it was absurd with that if inflation is at two percent, that you would invest and get a two percent return, and your money was locked up for thirty years. Like you, you can't get it back. Like you just have to wait till that loan pays. It's, you know, so I've always thought, hey, rates should be higher. I still feel that, but that the rules that operate some of the financial world that we live in, they don't necessarily make sense. There's there's other forces at play. Um, so so anyway, all that being said, you know, I I feel the same way I felt for the last you know seven years that rates should be going up, and they will some point. One day I'll be right. It may be in twenty years, but. <laughs> One day I'll be right and rates will go up. Who, who knows? Um, so, but is, is, you know, from the mortgage side, it's going to be really busy um, for mortgage lenders. Uh, there is going to be an, a point where, and you saw this as well when rates, we, we saw rates kind of go up to the high fours, maybe, I don't know, year, year and a half ago, something like that. And um, it does be begin to create this kind of impact on inventory where, if you refinance and you got a, a 3% interest rate or 2.8 or 2.5 on a 15-year, if you got a super low interest rate and now rates go up to 5% or 6%, well, upgrading your home costs a lot more than what it normally does because most people's cost is really their monthly payment. It's not actually the price you pay for the home. So the uh, if we see rates go up, it could create a like a, a lack of inventory where people have locked in these super low rates. But that's not a that's not always a powerful motivation. Some people they just need to move and they're right. okay, you know, giving up their super low rate and buying a new one. So um so anyway, I think the mortgage industry is gonna be busy. Uh real estate is gonna be busy. Unemployment's really high and it honestly puzzles me that there are so many people buying homes right now when I think national unemployment is at somewhere around twenty percent today mm-hmm. that we're recording this podcast that that seems like it di- doesn't connect with two sets of reality right. that I hold. But but um, I will say that a lot of the unemployment is not 
in the sectors that typically represent home ownership right. as well. So you've got a lot of food service workers and temporary workers. It just and that's not universal. There's always exceptions. Um, it's just a lot of. I mean, you you've had every restaurant shut down. Mm-hmm. Typically, we don't do a lot of loans for servers because their income is not right. consistent. They're they're usually a little bit more on the rental side of things. Um, I've got a buddy. I know you guys had some commercial guys in here. They could probably speak to it better than than I do. But um, I've got a buddy that has uh that is real big in the commercial side of multifamily apartments and things like that and you know he said that the two areas that are hit the most is the really low end and the really high end of the apartment market so the like the low end which is some of the jobs that are most impacted um and then the high end because they're paying so much it's like well if i'm gonna pay this much i don't want to be stuck in an apartment during the next quarantine i'm gonna go ahead and and get a house with a yard you know like i'm spending $1,800 $1,800 a month for an apartment right? and I don't have a yard and I'm stuck and I'm going crazy. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, but, um, but right now the, the, the housing market's really hot and there's not a lot of inventory and we're seeing, you know, multiple bids and we're trying to help our, our clients be more competitive in multiple bid situations, however we can. And, um, are, are you able to see any type of forbearance numbers? Have they gone up like we thought they were? Yeah, they're pretty high. Uh, I think that government loans, it was a Fannie Mae, uh, I mean, sorry, FH, Ginny Mates, FHA, VA, USDA, HUD-184 loans. I think the forbearance rate on those is up to about 12%. And um, conventional loans, I think it's around 7%, 75 Okay. And I think the blend between the two probably lands around 9% nationwide forbearance. Mm-hmm. And that's really with only um, two months red of payments registered. You have the April right. 1st set of payments and May 1st. June is still, I mean, we're, we're not two weeks into June, so no one has late payments yet. So it may continue. The rate of increase is slowing down, but the forbearance thing, I mean, it, it, it introduced a lot of really interesting dilemmas for every lender that they had to deal with. And everyone made different risk decisions and no one's right. No one's wrong. It's just, you're just trying to kind of look at your scenario, but you know, so the, the way that um, agency bonds, so Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginnie Mae are structured is that those bondholders, one of the reasons the, the, the yields are so low on those is because it's guaranteed cash flow. So they're not subject to any risk. Like the, the, you, when you buy, let's say you bought a $100 million bond, like you get your payment every month. Even if the borrower doesn't make their payment, you still get your payment. Um, and so that's a real interesting thing when Congress comes out and tells everybody that they're going to mandate mortgage companies will give you forbearance, but the mortgage companies still have to advance payments to the bondholders. And then uh, historically, forbearance has been considered a, a major derogatory event. It's, I mean, it's not as bad as a foreclosure, but it's derogatory and it's problematic and it creates a lot of, um, a lot of new challenges that you have to work through. And so there's a lot of legacy lending rules. I mean, um, you know, where if someone, you know, and I don't think we've had it, but I know of other companies that had a guy close on a home on like on his way home from the title company called and requested forbearance on his brand new loan that was set up. Well, that that's a really big problem to have that early of a forbearance. Typically a lender has to buy that loan back from the agencies. First payment default, right? Yeah, typically. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's, there's a tremendous, you know, we, we are starting to see issues where the agencies, uh, like, like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac just came out. Uh, I don't know. I think it's on loan applications starting on June 11th. What's, what's today. I, don't know, I turn my phone off. So, uh, 
today's the night. So in two days, um, there's a new requirement. So typically if a, for a self-employed borrower, we would just use the income from the last year or two of tax returns and be done. Well, now we actually have to pull, get a PL and get bank statements and verify that COVID has not impacted their business. And if it has, we have to recalculate income off of, um, bank statements and PLs, and that's an agency guideline. It's not a cornerstone oh. guideline. So it's a tremendous amount of work, first of all. Um, and it's also going to disqualify borrowers who, um, you know, it, a, PL, a year-to-date PL is really interesting because if there's any seasonality to your business, it's not a very good reflector. Right. So you could have had a business, let, let's say you had a, I don't know, a hair salon. And for one month, you didn't have any business, but the next month you were double booked. Right. Like everyone else, everyone came in twice. Um, and so over the course of the year, you balance out. But if I just stop after the first month, it looks like you died. Right. Your business died, even though the next month you made up for it and, and caught right back up right. on pace. So a year to date PL doesn't work great when there's seasonal curves. Um, and so we've seen that come up with a few few folks. We had a uh, and normally we don't have to pull those in. You know, we have a guy that owns his own oil and gas company. And obviously it's it's been a tough year. Um, but it's just a little bit more serious underwriting. Um, people we've had folks in the medical, which is, which is odd. You know, you've got a, a worldwide pandemic and it's actually impacted healthcare workers pretty tough because right. nobody wants to go to the hospital. Yep. You know, people don't want to go to the ER. Um, and you know, there's stats on like people dying from heart attacks at a much higher rate because they have chest pains and they don't want to go to the ER because right. they're afraid of getting COVID. And so they die of a heart attack instead. And I actually, um, a cornerstone team member out in Colorado that actually happened to for, for that exact reason. It doesn't, doesn't work for me, but I just know the story. Um, anyway, uh, so, so you've got people that their incomes and jobs are being disrupted. And I do think that, you know, we have seen deals bust late into the transaction because income and employment change suddenly in, in, in an irreparable fashion. Right. Um, and we've had some people that had to wait until, they came back online or their income went back to where it was. And, um, and the agencies are, I mean, and when I say the agencies, I, I want to just clarify something for people that don't understand. It doesn't matter who your lender is on a, any conventional loan. We're all selling it to Fannie and Freddie. Like we still service our loans. Our customers send us their monthly payments, but when you service a loan, you still sold that to Fannie and Freddie. Right. You're just taking the payments and passing the interest on Fannie and Freddie are not in the servicing game. They don't, want to deal with homeowners, we do that for them. So everybody is dealing with the same thing. It's not different for anyone, but um, they're, they're not giving us really good guidance on how to interpret these things. Um, They're mandating that you give people forbearance, but a lot of times they punish the lender. If the customer requests forbearance, like you made that loan, this is an early payment default. We're going to penalize you. Um, You know, one of the examples that everyone's dealing with right now is Fannie and Freddie. If a customer requests forbearance before they buy the loan, they charge you a seven point, um, it's called an LLPA, loan level price adjustment, but it's a, it's a hit. So seven points is 7%. Uh, so if you made a, a $500,000 loan to a customer and then they request forbearance before that loan has been purchased, then Fannie may charge you $35,000, which is far more than the profit on the loan ever far was. More. Far more. Um, and historically, independent mortgage companies average $800 loan profit, maybe. Right. Uh, and that ebbs and flows when it's really slow or really busy, but that's kind of the the, the baseline. 
So one one loan that you get hit with that seven point fee on is going to offset, you know, maybe an entire month's worth of yeah. profits or something. I mean, so but the crazy thing is that Fannie and Freddie are the ones that are allowing the forbearance, and yet they they penalize the lender in the middle. So there there's just a lot of things going on, and I think that um, you know right now there are some lenders out there that I think are taking too much risk, and if they escape unscathed feel fine but if they get hit with some of these things Mm -hmm. that are out there it's going to they're gonna they're gonna pull back really quick on different things that are going on um so but you know you you also have the pressure of you want to serve the community you want to have all the products available you you want to you know you want to be kind of the one-stop shop and so everyone's kind of wrestling with these things and dealing with them again i don't fault anyone for any decisions they're making right now um Everyone is just trying to figure it out. We don't have a lot of guidance. Right. Um, but ultimately, Fannie and Freddie are, again, and, and Jenny, they're, they're saying, hey, yeah, we uh, everybody gets forbearance if they need it, but the lender that made the loan is the one that gets penalized. They're the only ones that really kind of get hit for it. So it's it's an interesting time. It is. Um, and, uh, but, you know, overall, I'm really optimistic, really bullish on things. Um uh, particularly, I mean, we I've got offices throughout Oklahoma, Arkansas, and California that are part of my region right now. Um, but you know, Oklahoma's always obviously close to my heart. I was born and raised here. Um, and I I feel really good about the economy and the outlook for housing here, even with kind of the the oil struggles that we're in. I, there's a lot of new companies coming in, a lot of new businesses starting up all the time. Um, our housing prices are very affordable, traffic's really good. You know, I we you know, we've got an off. We've got again. We've got offices in California. We just see what houses cost there and what they look like for what you it's pay. A, it's a little different than yeah. Oklahoma. We did a, we did a, we did a loan. Is a conf, is a condo in downtown uh, San Francisco. So thousand square feet for one point nine million. Wow, yeah, nineteen hundred a foot, and it was okay. <laughs> I mean, it was. I mean, it was didn't like knock your socks off. Wow. But, uh, so anyway, uh, but. I'm a big fan of Oklahoma city and I think we're going to be good. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I think our real estate's great. We, we, I do see a lot of investors want to buy from around the country, want to buy property here. I don't know if you guys do a lot of those closings, but we, do. we, we, we do. see a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's always good to hear from you. And uh, one of the things we kind of wrap up with is asking, what do you look for in a title company? Yeah. So, so really when <laughs> it's not just a title company, it's just anyone that I partner with. It's like, I don't want to worry about a thing. I just need to know that you're going to do, you're, you're going to do what you need to do. I'll do what I need to do. And I don't want to have to check on you. I don't want to have to worry. Um, that's about it. So that, that's it. Just you guys just take care of your part of it. <laughs> uh, well, handle it, overcome problems. I'll do the same and uh, we'll, we'll get it done. I think it's safe to say that, that we do a lot of business together. Yeah. We appreciate it. Well, thank you. You do a very professional job. You, your reputation speaks for itself. Thank you. Um, Brian, it. thank you for yeah. coming on today. Thanks for inviting me. It's we fun. appreciate it. To all of our listeners uh, in the year of 2020, please stay safe and always remember it really does make a difference where you close. Don't jump the drop.